Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello and uh, welcome to CTN. To learn more about the show, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. And the topic for today is enabling effective virtual care. So with pandemic, we have healthcare organizations and the patients. They are looking at virtual care as a great option given everyone is at home and trying to survive. Now, we have had some initial results with virtual care uh, that are very encouraging and looks like it could be a great solution based on the scenario that we are dealing with. But then there are a number of challenges. What were reported by the doctors, the healthcare institutions. So doctors say they struggle with technology, the licensing, jurisdictional issues. And the patients say, we deal with the consistent bandwidth or whatever is required for us to get uh, the healthcare, uh, healthcare administered for us, then hospital systems are trying to figure out how to integrate virtual care into their clinical workflow. And they're trying to figure out how to beef up their technology infrastructure. And at the same time, tackle HIPAA compliance and security. So that's a lot being tackled and or addressed or handled by too many different constituents. So it's not fully cooked yet. So how can policymakers, the healthcare organizations and medical practitioners collaborate, come together to see if we can really make virtual care mature and totally help have it help the patients who need it most. So to discuss this, I have with me Jason Joseph, Senior Vice President, Chief Digital and Information Officer with Spectrum Health. Hey, Jason, how are you? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me today. Great. Great to have you. So, uh, Jason, we know that virtual care makes total sense, especially in today's environment. And, of course, if you did not have the pandemic, people may have still said, okay, you know, we, that's a Star Trek version of what healthcare can be, so it would have been pushed back, say, 10 years. But now maybe it became, the crisis became an opportunity for virtual care to gain some ground. But then there are a lot of uh, challenges that we have. So with all those challenges, we have made some progress. What would you say is the current state of virtual care adoption and the results it has been able to deliver? Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question to think about. And, you know, I think it's important to to remember, too, that virtual care was around pre-pandemic. And certainly the pandemic has shown a spotlight on the promise of virtual care. But really, at, if you go pre-COVID and look at where virtual care fit, it was almost a niche offering. It was kind of a pseudo-urgent care, convenient care, talk-to-a-doctor-on-demand type of service that was offered sporadically with relatively low adoption rates and primarily for people who were already digitally savvy. Um, and so as, as COVID hit and, and doctor's offices shut down and we realized that we still had to deliver healthcare, but we needed to do it in a safe manner, all of the underlying issues that weren't necessarily uncovered prior to the pandemic started 
blazing forward, right? Because you think about it, it's like, well, you know, the person who had a bandwidth issue before wasn't going to do a virtual visit on demand. It just wasn't even there. And the provider that wasn't interested in this wasn't going to do it because they just weren't interested in it. We worked around those situations. And, you know, the, the reimbursement and the payment wasn't as big of an issue because we offered these often with a flat fee type of service and we didn't necessarily deal with all the the uh, reimbursement and the pricing issues in the market. Um, so as COVID hit, a lot of those barriers were removed almost overnight, right? Patients needed to seek care. Providers had to do this to, to just keep in business, if you will, right? The reimbursement structure had to enable this, so we had to drop it. A lot of the concerns about how you actually do a, a a virtual visit and how you deliver that care in HIPAA secure manners, some of those requirements backed down. And you just saw this kind of confluence of things all come together at once to make it work. And I would say what happened there, and if you look at our numbers uh, at Spectrum Health, we had a huge spike. We had about a almost a 20-fold increase in the month, month of April and May when we essentially had most of our clinics and providers shut down. But that is now kind of dropped back down, and it's still higher than we were pre-pandemic, but it's definitely not where it was at the peak because as we've opened services back up, both the providers and the patients have sought care in in more traditional manner um, in more traditional manner so you know as we look at the the current state what I would say is we've broken through the barrier right the 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 genie's out of the bottle on this one and people understand what is possible but we haven't yet optimized it for any of the parties truth be told right the providers still have a lot of opportunity to make it a virtual visit as efficient for them as in an office visit the patients have a lot of opportunities to make it as easy to do as just going to see your provider. And we have a lot of opportunities just in really simulating what is actually necessary. Certainly a follow-up visit or a consult, or we just wanted to check in on you visit or a visit where you can largely do it visually, right? With a, a video camera, we could probably accommodate those and we should push to make as many of those visits possible virtual. But then we have this other category of things where there's a procedure to be done or there's some more advanced intensive diagnostics that may require laying hands or using some devices to check temperature or look in the eyes or the nose or the ears. And while those devices do exist, they're far from mainstream. So what I would say is if, you know, if we were kind of in our infancy, we are now uh, crawling around toddlers who still have a whole lot to learn, and we're going to bump into some walls and uh, make some mistakes. But we know that we're at least on a pathway to seeing virtual care um, come full full circle. But uh, as, as you kind of mentioned, there still are a lot of those underlying systemic issues that we're going to have to work together uh, with others to solve for. So the way you described it looks like a minimum viable product stage yeah. with virtual care. Great. It's a great way to look at it. We've proven that it can be effective. We've proven that it can work. We've proven that providers and patients could be happy with it, but it's certainly not to the point yet where we would see this as a substantial replacement for care as we see it today. And would you say the the infrastructure or the strategies we need or the 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 workforce we need and the talent we need, is it all there? And we are just waiting for it, the, 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 all the wrinkles to be ironed out over time, or there are some totally blind spots, which we 
you know, we don't know what we don't know. And then there are some spots which we know we are going to be stuck with and we don't have a solution yet. Yeah, I would say it's more the latter. Um, you know, clearly we don't have everything we need. We, you know, we thought we were quite frankly, leaders in virtual care, we've had virtual care services up for years and, and actually made our own and we built our own app and had our own providers covering it. And we still learned a ton and have a ton to learn. And so I think we're going to see this completely evolve as, as any product, right? You don't really understand where those barriers are until you hit them. But I also, you know, as, as you kind of walk through um, and understand where those gaps are, I would say that, you know, in a lot of cases, um, the true potential is going to be much harder to grasp than just making an effective alternative for a visit. So let me, th let me put it this way, right? Selling a book in a bookstore was one way of buying a book back in the day. And then Amazon came along and revolutionized book buying and found an efficiency to sell a book online, right? But it wasn't until later that the Kindle came along and tr truly revolutionized it and said, boy, that's a whole lot less expensive way to produce and sell a book. Now, the margin didn't necessarily change that much, but certainly the cost to produce was different and it shifted the economics. I think the virtual care phenomena is going to go through a similar type of process, right? Getting a provider interacting with a patient over a video chat with whatever else there, if that visit still takes 10 or 15 minutes or 30 minutes, depending on the complexity, you haven't really taken a lot out. You've taken out the travel and the parking and maybe some of the building infrastructure, but all the coordination that goes into that is still basically the same. You still, now you've added some technology into the mix. And I think we'll find some efficiencies there and certainly some things that people will like and have a better experience. But until we get to true digital automation, until we can get to the point where many of the steps that are necessary there don't have to require a person speaking with a person and capturing data into a medical record, until that starts to become more automated, I don't think we're going to re realize the full potential, which to me says this is going to be a bit of a journey. So whenever we move something from uh, brick and mortar to online, one thing is that, yeah, you can say, I, can, I would want to charge a premium because now I'm giving you this cool experience. But at the same time, the perception of virtual care, or in this context, the patient will say, hey, doctor is sitting in his office, he's not moving around, or the hospital doesn't have to have that much infrastructure, why am I paying that much? On the other hand, the doctor says, I'm totally okay to go to the hospital to see a patient so I can make as much. And here is a cost pressure because I'm doing something online. I'm not going to get paid as much. So that could become an issue with the hospital, with the patients, and with the, the physicians who all are trying to play this tug of war, the price war, if you will. And that could become a disincentive for all parties to move virtual I, care ahead. I, th I think you're right. And, you know, I think you can only squeeze that so far before you kind of just get to the point where you say, look, it's, it's, there's nothing more to wring out of this, right? We've already got to, you know, price competitiveness. We'll hit the floor of whatever that is. You're absolutely right. It's not just the, the patients, but the payers are saying, wait a second, if you can do this more efficiently, I want those dollars back. And if you haven't noticed, there isn't a whole lot of national debate going on about how do we actually uh, put more money into the healthcare system, right? I mean, the goal here is how do we take money out and get better outcomes at the same time? So I think that tug of war that you just described is absolutely 
going to be one of the things we have to wrestle through. And the innovators are not only going to find a way to get to whatever that optimal balance point is, but they're going to have to figure out how to push past it. And uh, that's going to be where it's going to get really interesting, I believe. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And let's talk about, besides, of course, the economics of healthcare, which is going to get disrupted with this virtual care paradigm, what else is needed for the healthcare organizations and the practitioners and everyone else involved to buy into this new way of imparting education, delivering healthcare, and receiving healthcare? What would be the shift in mindset? What would be the change in grooming and talent that we would need to do so that everyone comes on board and see this through to evolution and eventual perfection? Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjog Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Jason, we know we all have an interest and, and healthcare organizations see that as a way, at least during pandemic, to keep going. Practitioners also see as a way to keep making money, but this is for the long haul. If you move this route, not sure if you're going to go all the way only to virtual care, maybe physical and virtual care will coexist, but still it's a shift and it's, it's going to be semi-permanent, if not fully permanent. That said, what kind of a mindset and grooming do you think we will have to expect and or uh, impart or help enable in among all these stakeholders so this does happen and people come on board with the spirit that, yes, let's make it happen? Yeah, I think, you know, if you break it down by the constituents, I'll, I'll give you a few examples, Right. Um, we've had uh, some meetings where we've had some pretty vocal physicians who think that virtual care is borderline unsafe and should be illegal. <laughs> and we've had others who think that's hogwash and it's the greatest thing because they can really feel a connection and remove a lot of the other waste uh, in the system. And, and those perspectives are always going to exist in any any change you make, right? We t- tend to think about it as you got a third of the people who are like, sign me up, let's go. A third of the people are like over my dead body and the third in the middle are kind of prove it works and I'll be on board. And um, that applies to patients. Uh, one example I have is, you know, when, when you're doing virtual care in a vacuum of kind of digital competent folks, and then you switch over to doing it with everyone else, some of the things that you think are not a big deal, like how to download an app on your phone to run a virtual visit become a big deal. And when you're talking to somebody that says, I don't know how to do that, well, do you have a mobile phone? Well, yeah, you know, if you do have a mobile phone or do I have a computer, how do I, how do I make that, that work? And so we've gone from some of those things that you consider just par for the course, like table stakes and having to enable virtual visits by sending a text message where it's just click the link and then you're in. Um, 
And so that that's one mindset shift I think we have to get over is just whether or not this can approximate a visit. And I think, you know, the way we're thinking about it is virtual is certainly is a capable proxy for some percentage of visits that exist today. You know, whether it's 50% or 70% or 30%, we'll have to find that balance. But there's clearly a set of things where it's not a good proxy. You either need to lay hands or you need more diagnostic information, whatever that may be. The health plans are looking at this going, well, wait a second, if you can do this over the phone in 10 minutes, I'm not paying you the same price. I want a lower rate, even if you get the same outcome. Whereas the providers are saying, look, we feel like we've been underpaid for a while in this primary care arena. You know, if we can be more efficient, why should we give you the money back? So there's there's all of that that goes into it. And, you know, as a system, as a healthcare system, we need to look at this and say, all right, how do we get to, what is our goal? What are we trying to accomplish with this? And how do we bring this forward so that all the different participants can actually um, start to work together and solve this problem? I think the way that's going to happen is we're going to really have to start to work on each of those issues in each of those environments to get them to the point where, you know, everybody can kind of live with, <laughs> with live with the way it's going to be done. And we have a solution that is just over time going to become the new norm. And then the last thing I'll say on that is, you know, sometimes we think of healthcare as one monolithic thing, but in reality, it's a hundred different microservices that are all very different. And as you think about this entire journey, it's it's often, you know, simple to think, well, what about the visit, right? We're so focused on this visit as the thing. But if you really think about what you're trying to accomplish in healthcare, a lot of times a visit isn't the thing, right? It's the the diagnostic test and it's the assessment and it's the prescription. And it's the follow-up on that to see if there's side effects. There's a lot of things that we've built into our healthcare system that today revolve around this idea of a visit that in the future, I think if we're really thinking creatively, wouldn't necessarily um, wouldn't necessarily be done that way. And I think that's the real power of virtual is starting to reinvent the system around this new digital capability. Think uh, a brick and mortar example where someone says, I need to visit. Uh, a hospital or a physician's clinic, they may come alongside, there may be even family members. So the experience is not purely clinical. Mm -hmm. There is something to be said about the the physician sees them, chit chats about what's going on, about their work, this, that, and the other, and also help try to diagnose and resolve prescribed medicine, whatever else that someone would do as part of imparting healthcare. Now, patients experience is what they place value on. And healthcare is, can also get competitive. So when you, does value the, the virtual care, does it level the playing field to an extent that no matter how good a doctor is in person, they would be only as good as the last video call they did because they would not have an opportunity to shine in front of the patient and or the family and thus harder to justify their brand or the the need for someone to come to them again and again, like any other professional. So is it going to uh, make the whole experience sterile? You know, I, I don't think it will over time. I think there'll be a period where, you know, um, that com- competition will drive to, to some of the efficiencies. But, you know, one of the unique things about healthcare is we've got different demographics here who, who view healthcare in the relationship with their provider very differently. 
So for example, some of the older generations view that uh, recommendation of the provider as gospel, right? They, they really seek it out and say, if you tell me to do something, I'm going to do it. And they, they seek out and value their provider relationship. Flip down to the other end of the spectrum and, and look at millennials and you know even some of the, the, the Gen Z, and, and they don't see a relationship with the provider as something they need or want. Right? They'd rather have the convenience and they'd rather seek the services when they need it. So I think this is going to look different and there's probably going to be different offerings that are going to be very tailored and personalized, if you will, to the needs of the consumer. And for those consumers that do value a relationship with the provider, our goal, for example, is to still continue that provider relationship and just do it in a virtual manner, not to substitute that necessarily to say, hey, you're just now part of a pool and one of 20 doctors might see you tomorrow. Um, you know, there's times where that works and there's times where you really want to see, you know, Dr. Smith and Dr. Smith knows me. And so I think over time, we will find ways of bringing that personal relationship and expanding it beyond the individual provider. But that's, again, that I think is going to be part of that journey. And, and I do think that patients, one of the interesting comments we've heard from providers that you wouldn't have expected is some of them feel like they're more personal and virtual because they are 100% focused on looking at the patient on their screen. Whereas when they're in an exam room, think about it, right? They can be distracted by typing their notes into the keyboard on the computer that's on the wall looking away, or there's other things going on and they may not be able to give that focus. So I think it's all in how you kind of design that experience. And I think there are going to be organizations that design the experience to be exceptional. And I'm not talking about the technology or the buttons or the colors, right? Not, you know, we sometimes think about it that way. But that whole experience can leave you with a feeling that you just had a more personal experience if done well. And I think there is absolutely going to be plenty of examples, as you mentioned, where it just feels like a transaction. And uh, those are going to be the, the organizations that you know may work in the short term, but are less likely to create a long-term lasting uh, patient relationship. Let's talk technology. So I'm sure you must be on the spotlight and maybe also on the hot seat when it comes to virtual care. How are you dealing with it? Well, you know, I think it is both. Um, you're right. You know, I think any CIO that's try, tried to manage through this COVID time probably can, you know, uh, <clears throat> relate to the, being the best friend one day and the worst uh, nightmare the next. And, you know, certainly as we look at this, uh, the CIOs, especially in healthcare, are kind of in the spotlight to say, hey, how are we going to do this? And one of the challenges with that perspective, quite frankly, is the technology, although we have things to do, isn't really the biggest gap. Um, you know, we have video channels, multiple ways of communicating with patients. We've got portals, we've got text messaging, we've got diagnostic tools we can ship to your house to monitor you at home. Those things exist. So the technology is there. It needs to be optimized and tweaked, but putting it into an operating model that works for your payment structure, that works for your provider efficiency, that works for your patients, that optimizes people's time, uh, you know, for example, if you have a patient who's getting ready for a visit and they really are not very digitally competent, whose who's job is it to make sure that they can get on and do that? What happens if their home is not broadband enabled and they don't have mobile high-speed internet? Well, then what? How do you deal with that? A lot of these kind of fundamental issues still have to be resolved. 
So we can solve it for that core in the center, if you want that perfect customer that's going to do this all day long and love it. But then you're going to have to ultimately deal with those rings of people who are less prepared to handle and manage through all of that. And I think that's the, that is going to be the challenge and the struggle as we move forward with this. So if you were to think about, say, um, a suggested way to invite virtual care into an organization, allow people to get somewhat comfortable with it, and then scale it out. Any lessons learned from your journey thus far? You know, I would say bring your clinicians and your leaders, not just along, but have them out in front to lead. Um, you know, it's easy to think about the technology gaps and therefore that your, your technology team is going to take the leadership role. And trust me, I'm a, I'm a big fan of if you work in the IT world or the IS world, as we call it, or the digital world of not being an order taker, right? I want to sit back and wait for people to tell us what to do. So we need to push and be right there. But ultimately, what, what digital transformation is, is it is taking the way we do business and transforming it to take advantage of digital. And there's technology involved in that, but it isn't about the technology. And I think so often we miss that point. So get those clinicians bought in, work with them on their perfect workflow, start to identify the gaps and the barriers and don't skip over the stuff that seems like it's you know, not solved, but you don't know how to solve it today. Like, boy, you know, the patients that don't know how to get access, what do we do with them? Don't skip that step, solve it. You know, figure out your partnership for a support model that can go into the homes and get people hooked up if that's part of what you're driving to. Engage this like a business transformation effort, not just a technology implementation. Number one rule in my mind is if you do that, then you can start working through this process and you're going to be much more successful than if you just bring new tools and capabilities to the table. So let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back after these messages. And let's talk about the different ways we can get the customer expectations. We spoke about economics a little bit, but then how do we handle the customer expectations? Because they could uh, be the dampers. There could be other stakeholders who could be dampers, but then how do we crack it? What has been done so far to turn them around and have them start adopting the, the new economics or new way of getting this healthcare being imparted to them so that the virtual care model can start feeling real? What has worked? What hasn't worked? What are the learnings? Where are the struggles? Please stay tuned. Listeners, we'll be right back and explore. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back. So, so Jason, we did talk about economics a little bit. All that is good. And then also people, their mindset, et cetera, has to be fixed. But then there are certain things you may have tried as a, you know, healthcare IT leaders, your counterparts and business side, or your executive management may have tried. So if you were to lay it out and say, guys, this is a list of things you don't want to do when you're starting out or you're at the stage one, two, or three, and these are the things which if that other attempt that you made did not work. These are some of the things you can try. So some revelations. This is your time. Share with us. Yeah, I, I give you kind of three nuggets on this. Um, number one, believe it or not, one of the biggest contributors to whether or not patients are going to adopt something is whether or not their providers advocate it for it. So if a provider says, you know, you can do that virtual thing, but I prefer to see you in person, what's going to happen? right? They're going to want to come in and see them in person. But if their provider says, you know, we've got this virtual care option. You don't need to drive in next time. I'd be happy to see you at home. On your way out, we'll help you get set up with the technology. And if you have any problems with that, we'll help you. How's that sound? That's a completely different mindset at that point, not only from the provider's perspective, but from the patient's perspective, they're going to give that a go. And they're going to be much more apt to say, this is a viable alternative and yeah, I can see that's less wasteful on my on my side of things. Um, and this is this is an important thought. I think you also have to recognize though that there is much more to this than just comfort and competency. <laughs> and the story I'll give the example is actually my in-laws. I was so frustrated with them one time because they kept saying they had to go into the bank to deposit a check. And this was maybe a couple of years ago. I said, you know, do you realize that you can do this now from your home? And that bank is 30 minutes away from you. They lived out in kind of rural area. And they thought about that. They said, you know, we're getting out of the house. You know, this is something we like to do. And so it's not always about the convenience for everyone. There's other elements to this. And so knowing your consumer and knowing what's best for them really is the goal. We shouldn't be pushing virtual on people that really can't or won't do it, but we want to make that so easy that it's a choice that people will make rather than a burden. So that provider centricity of making sure that they're bought in, I think has to be the starting point. You can't force a patient into that if the providers aren't there. Second, I would say is like most organizations that started out in virtual, we started out with a separate service, right? We had all of our core clinical services that were basically traditional services. And we had this department that really focused on providing care virtually. And people would sign up for shifts and we would cover that separately, but it wasn't really part of that core. If I saw my doctor, I couldn't see my doctor virtually through that service. It was just a is an urgent care substitute, convenient care type of situation. For this to work well, it just has to be another channel for care. It can't be seen as a different product. It can't be seen as something outside the norm. It has to be the transformation of the product that we're selling, which is healthcare, into a digital world. And that mindset of doing that is is a very different thing because now you have to think about it as you have to change your business here. It's not just an adjunct or a bolt onto the business. And when you start to think of it that way, you start to deal with all the other issues that come out like, well, how do I check people in and how do they schedule that appointment? Do they schedule appointment? What happens when they're online and I'm not ready? Where do they wait? How do they get to that next step? How do they pay if they aren't comfortable with a credit card? And do I take cash or don't I make them pay? All of that stuff has to be worked out. And so forcing this into that mainstream does make it less fast to get going. But I think we're beyond that now. And that's kind of 
the way I would look at this is this is a transformation, not a bolt on. And the, the last thing is don't assume patients are capable. Um, and it's not because they're, they're not capable. It's just, you know, that idea of who's going to help them get connected is a real thing. And yes, in the perfect Amazon world, everybody has an account and is perfectly able to order stuff with no help. But in this world, that's not our reality. We need to have a support model around that. And I'm guessing that we don't want our highly paid physicians being the frontline IT support for our patients. And so we need to have that reconciled and have a way to deal with that if we're going to make this efficient for the providers who will then advocate for it and allow our patients to grab onto it. And run. And so those are kind of the three main nuggets I would point to right now in this journey. And none of them really have to do with how good your technology is, believe it or not. So talking about technology, do you think we are there yet? Everything that you would have liked to see in terms of the 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 hardware, the software, the applications, the integrations, the adapters, the accelerators, you name it, right? So Absolutely you, not. Yeah, enabling it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, we got a good start, right? We've got video clients and we've got portals and we can pay things online. All the stubs are there. But if you really think about how many years we've spent kind of building our systems around that experience in an office-based or an in-person setting, we've got to now have that same setup in the virtual world. And, you know, often the video client vendor, you know, is not the one who's doing your billing, who's not the one doing your scheduling, who's not the one recording the care and uh, getting all the, the forms filled out and your signature pad and all that stuff. I think we have a tremendous amount of optimization to go. I don't know that we're necessarily missing massive pieces of technology that people haven't thought of. I think what we're, what we really need to do is focus on how does that stitch together end to end from a patient journey perspective and, and how do we put those things together elegantly so they're not, you know, starting and stopping in the process. You know, my big red flag is when you walk a process and then you have to get off of your digital world, make a phone call, fill out a form, any of those, you just broke the digital process. You can't be digital and do that. So you've got to go through and remove all of that. And then, you know, I, I do go back to that idea of digital and intelligence being the frontier, right? I think in the next year, given where we're at with virtual, maybe 18 months, I don't have a crystal ball, but you know, in the near future, we will have put together a, a good, seamless, positive digital experience to replicate a virtual visit in a way that patients and providers can live with it. I'm, I'm quite confident we've got the tools in our toolbox ready to go and the vendors are on a path to get there. What I'm not as confident on is whether or not we will start to really truly drive automation on that journey um, as well, right? So once you have that data and you've got the process digitized, what are those steps that don't need to happen anymore? How do I pull those things completely out of the mix? Rather than saying, how do you fill out this 50 section form online? Why don't we ask ourselves, why do I need a 50 section form? <laughs> do I have that information elsewhere that I can pull in? And how do I make sure that I can make this so seamless? I, I think that is I think that is going to be the journey. I'm still a little bit amazed by the struggles. We, I mean, we've on, a, I don't know if we're on a, like our fourth video client in, in the last year. Things that you'd think are well-oiled, you know, technologies now still have struggles. Multi-party visits, you know, the ability to launch from a, a single-click text message, um, the ability to do this in multiple languages, the ability to kind of bring the conversation and integrate it into your EMR so that that conversational language actually starts to generate the note and the documentation doesn't become a separate 
uh, parallel process. I think there's a lot of that that's still yet to be done that is going to be the journey our digital uh, and analytics teams are going to be on for the next couple of years in healthcare. Because of the lack of maturity of tools and the integration, and you said we might not be the most effect, efficient, not effective, efficient, because we might be filling the same form three times or whatever other those leakages could be. But does that in any way jeopardize or undermine the quality of care which a patient expects? Because that could also be damaging to the brand. You know, I, I think that's already there. I mean, you know, there's a lot of those things that exist, even if you have a a well-oiled office visit, there's still a lot of those frustrators that are there in healthcare, sometimes because, you know, we just haven't figured out a better way to do it. And we're, we've put that in front of the patient. Sometimes it's a regulatory requirement. Sometimes the payer, you know, requires that to get paid for something. So there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think it's already there. I think the trick is when you're in a digital world, those things kind of get amplified, right? Because now it's right in your face and you look at that and you go, gosh, this should be simpler, right? When you're in the office and there's a clipboard, I don't know why, but I think we're just wired to expect it more or at least tolerate it. I think in the digital world, we don't. I I think we just say, this is completely crazy. Why do I have to do this? Or I've already answered this form the last three times I saw this provider. Why are they asking me the same questions? We have to be relentless at looking at that. And starting to think like a consumer company and say, what are the minimal necessary things I can actually get that consumer to do? That's got to be our goal. And and in healthcare, there's so many competing forces. That's just hard. It's just hard. We're going to have to unpeel that onion, if you will, or peel that onion uh, a layer at a time to get to the bottom of, of what is that core experience that we can do. So whether we call patient or we call customer, that experience is paramount, right? So relationship building total lifetime value of a customer. We talk about these things in retail or other businesses, but to some extent it also applies in any service business, including healthcare. So with that said, what other aspects which are non-clinical or non-technological, which we must fix and or optimize for this virtual care to really take, uh, you know, get the the required um, trust from that very customer and the very comfort from the people who are administering it. So it becomes like mainstream over time. Yeah, we do um, a lot of consumer surveys and studying our consumers. And if you think about it like a consumer, you know, most of the time we get really high grades on our clinical interactions. They love the providers. They feel like they're getting great quality care. That's not our biggest challenge. And I think that's going to translate well into the virtual world for the most part as we get it. It is those processes around it. It's the handoffs. It's the coordination. It's the referral from one provider to another that somehow feels like it's long and slow and not very transparent. And it's not at all how you would expect a digital world to work, right? I mean, if I'm seeing a provider and they say, you need to go see the specialist, boy, wouldn't it be simple to just place you know, an electronic order? I get a copy of that. It would go to somewhere else. They would send me a, a link and say, please schedule your visit, pick from these slots, right? How is that so disconnected in our world? And, and most of our feedback from consumers is around those, what I call the coordination of care activities. And sometimes that's our own fault within our own system, right, where we can do better. And sometimes it's the nature of the healthcare system overall, where you're going from, you know, 
Dr. A who works for company A and Dr. B who works for a different company. They don't have the same systems. They're not connected. They're not necessarily wired to create a digital handoff between the two of them. And that's going to be a challenge for quite a while as we look to make that experience digital. And as a consumer, you don't necessarily care, right? You don't say, I don't care who you work for, but if you're going to send me this doctor, why are you going to put me through that hassle? And so we're going to have to get really, I think, good at looking at those connective workflows, if you will, and figuring out how we can digitize those, because I think we'll get those main blocks of events relatively digital. But I think that continuity, if you will, isn't there. Yeah, one example I'll give you is how many times have you gone to see your provider, they look you over, and then they order you a test. And I think about that every time, like, that is a waste of time. Why couldn't you have seen me ahead of time, ask me those questions, ordered the test, had me get the test, and then come see you when I've had the results. Like, what's the point of seeing me before you have the results, right? They're not a whole lot of value. So now I got two visits when there could have been one. And those are the kind of things that I think in order for us to really get the value out of virtual, we've got to connect those connecting points digitally as well, which is a much more challenging problem for us to solve than just the, the experience of an individual event. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And let's talk about your own team, Jason. They didn't ask for it. Of course, virtual care was put on their lap. I'm sure they already had a spilling plate. What did you do to keep them excited and motivated and not maybe not just the technology team, but even the other business teams who were supposed to go about doing whatever job they had to do? Yes, pandemic changed things. But this definitely is requiring you to fundamentally rethink the workflows, the processes, and everything else for an internal employee standpoint. So what all you had to do to get them to sing Kumbaya and deliver on the virtual care promise? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Jason, your own team, I'm not sure what they are doing and how they reacted to this whole idea about them having to support virtual care, but that I'm sure had some disruptive elements to it there, what they were dealing with, how they were working on it, all that had to change. So what did you do to rally your troops, got them motivated, retrain, re, like basically groom them differently? And while you talk about your team, what happened to your counterparts in the other departments within uh, a system, a health system like yours, which which was painful yet had to be done. What was that? Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, great question. The the one thing I'll say about IS and healthcare, I've often said to people, you know, if you really want a uh, exciting job working technology, 
or in healthcare. And if you really want a wild ride, combine the two. And you know, oddly enough, when when COVID hit, and as we as we look at these, our teams are naturally drawn to a challenge and a crisis. I'll say people are almost energized by it. And I, I think you know you couldn't get people not to work on the weekends when COVID hit and we were trying to get our chat bot out there to help with the screening questions and get our employee screening tools out and you know renovate the way we were doing virtual care. Everybody leaned in and was probably so engaged. They just, that's why they live here. This is part of the mission. If you work in the healthcare world, you're not in it just as a job, you're in it because you believe in the fundamental mission. So the, the, the motivation factor, quite frankly, wasn't even an issue. I mean, people were like, we're in, tell us where we need to go. Let's, let's go after this. We were very fortunate in, in our journey because we had already started to implement Agile. Um, and we've been on a safe Agile framework journey now for, for years, but really started to push that in our digital and our clinical spaces as well this year. And what that really does is it aligns the needs and the technologists that can put it together and the support teams all in kind of a, a crazy quick, you know, short cycle iterative manner. And that was really a game changer for us because it got, you know, the people who needed to get things going and the people who could provide that service in a conversation in real time with, with rapid prioritization. So I think between those two things, the, the IS world rallied quickly and we've gone through iterations and we've spun up tools and technologies that probably would have taken us weeks or months and in days and weeks. And it's been that journey, honestly, all year long. And we've continued to push that envelope and challenge whether things needed to take as long as we'd want them to do. And that's been a really good transition for us to think about what is the speed of business and we call it the you know COVID speed essentially. But it, you also mentioned, you know, what is the impact on our colleagues and other departments? And you know, I think as the technology comes at them, you know, we always minimize how hard it is to change um, our business practices to take advantage of it. Right. And so I don't think we necessarily have all of the the people and the skills and the teams focused on that business and that clinical operational change as we're going to need. So we're spending a lot of time right now kind of thinking through the how to bring those resources into our agile team structures so that we can make that change stick going forward. Because that's ultimately, if you can't get that to go, you can have the features out there. It's not going to make the difference that you intend it to be. You got to bring it together. All right. So take 30 seconds and tell me, what would you say a leader who is in your position should fix in themselves for them to be better equipped to deal with this virtual care, interesting virtual care experiment and or disruption that they're dealing with? Well, I, I think, first of all, you've got to lead with humility in this. I mean, none of us have been through this. We don't necessarily know all the answers, but our teams do, or at least they have a better sense. And you've just got to be someone who's willing to look at empowering your teams and bringing people together to connect the dots, that's your job as a leader right now. It's not to, to set the definitive direction, right? We can set the broad strategy and we can move forward, but you've got to kind of lead with that, that humility. And secondly, I would just tell people, you know, right now is the time to make sure that you're encouraging your teams and bringing them together. I mean, the, the, the connectedness that everybody needs to feel um, in this time is critical. And as, as a leader, we got to make sure that we're keeping our teams healthy and supportive. So if there's something they need, it's our job to get it. Once again, thank you so much, Jason, for sharing your insights and thoughts about how organizations and policymakers and medical practitioners work together to enable a very effective and plausible virtual care. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sanjay. I appreciated it. It's a fun time. 
Thank you again. And listeners, please enjoy uh, listening to this podcast and connect with us on the social media. Subscribe to our podcast, wherever the podcasts are. And once again, thank you for listening to CTN. This is your host, Sanjog All. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.